Today's episode is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it for free in the App Store. Overcast. Hello and happy winter! January has turned pretty crispy out there, and it's reminded me that it's been a pretty mild winter up to this point. We'll see what the next few weeks bring. This is the second half of our Lights in the Night episode recorded at Bruce Brothers in Murfreesboro, Illinois on January 11, 2020. It's a really neat establishment that's been open for a little over six years now. If you're a beer enthusiast like me, I especially recommend them as they feature a wide selection of taps from breweries all throughout Southern Illinois and beyond. Plus, their decorating is pretty awesome. It's a nice space all around. You should check it out. This is a somewhat shorter half than we had at the first, as we had a storyteller drop out due to an ear infection the morning of the show. Feel better, Carolyn. Our first storyteller was returner Crystal King with a personal story of coming back from the brink. I then follow up with a story about one of my oldest friends. And our fantastic music was provided by Mr. Tony Baker, Mr. Kyle Triplett, and myself, as always. In our darkest and coldest times, we all need light. Help who you can today. Talk to you soon. There's an Elvis movie on the marquee sign. We've all seen at least three times. Town, they never come back. 
two storytellers in this half of the show, and I am very excited, uh, certainly about the first one. Uh, this is a, a storyteller we had at our last show in October at St. Nick's, and uh, to continue and, and, and end the gripping saga of what happened to my saw blades, Crystal, I did go to your grandpa's and pick him up and paid $5 that he charges to have your saw blades sharpened. I got him back. So, anyway. Uh, Crystal King. <laughs> nervous because everyone wrote their story down and I did not write it down. Um, so I, I kind of want to just tell a story about my journey in the last year of healing mostly from a traumatic event. We won't speak of it, but we've all had like something in our lives that changed us forever, a death or a loss or a divorce or anything. It could be anything. But and you don't want to think that, like, metaphorically, the rug can just get, like, pulled out from under you, but it can. It can. And, like, last year, at the beginning of my year, I, I could have related to the Wicked Witch of the East where the house came and fell on her, you know, and everything that I knew about my life was not real anymore. And I've never been in the darkest place that I was in and I had feelings and I thought I'm just going to drive my car into oncoming traffic on my way to work and make it look like an accident and close my eyes at night and I don't want to wake up again. Dark place and I'd never been there ever or had these thoughts but something happened to me that I lost myself. I lost my light and I don't know if any of you believe metaphorically in lights like your soul or... But I do, and I have many friends in my life that are bright lights, and they're all separated, and they have special powers, and I always thought I had special powers, but I lost all of that in a second like that. And growing up, I remember thinking, I'm weird. Like, you know, I don't fit in. I had these big feelings. You know, I'm an eight-year-old child with old people worries and old people feelings and I remember riding the school bus and sitting in the front thinking I'll never live long enough to sit into the back of the bus you know like who thinks that as a child you know I, I didn't fit until I met someone and he explained to me that I was a bright light that people were drawn to me and they told me things about their lives that they hadn't told anyone and that was all gone you know, somebody took it from me, and how was I going to get it back? You know, I never in my life had to ask for help, but I had to go and ask for help. I had to go and say, there's something wrong with me. I'm not well. I need help. And I was sad, so sad. And I learned on the, on the journey that, you know, if I didn't sit with my sadness, it wasn't going to go away. Like, I had two choices. I could take this road over here that's bad, this road that nobody cares about me on, that's dark, 
there's no bright lights on that road. Or I could take this other road. And I went down that other road. It's not a good idea. Nobody wants to go down there, you know. So I took the right road this time. And, oh, my gosh, on that road, I found people that loved me that I didn't even know that I had lost. You know, that when I lost myself and I hadn't reconnected with them in years. And I found yoga and meditation. And I read books by Buddhist monks, you know, about peace and hope and being patient and looking within. And I sat alone and stared at the wall. I laid and stared at the back of my sofa, you know. I just knew that I had to find myself back and find my bright light back. And I want to talk a bit about some of these people on my journey that are bright lights and what make them bright lights because I don't believe that we all have this. We don't, we're not all have powers, do we? There's maybe average people or whatever. But these people in my life were just fantastic. And I have this friend, her name is Patty Bright Light. And her power is she will call you out on your bullshit. <laughs> I mean, like, if you tell her something, you know, I did this and this. And she's like, well, that's bullshit. You know, you need to be doing something else. Like, that's her power. And my friend Sarah, at, at the darkest moment on this journey, she's like a mother. She's, she's the most empathetic person I've ever met in my life. She's so loving, and she is a comforter. And whenever I knew that I needed help, she came to me and said, something is wrong. I'm going to tie you up and put you in my car and take you somewhere so that you will get help. And she knew what to say, and she said all the right things, and I, I felt comforted coming to her. And I could never do that. That's not one of my powers. Like, if somebody gets upset or sad or cries, I'm the broom person. I'm like, they're there. <laughs> Don't cry over there. Like, I can't help you because you make me feel bad. You know, I have to stay away from you. So that's her power. And... I knew on my journey doing all of these things and uh, just finding peace in my life that my light was coming back, the, the like pinnacle moment in knowing was. I went to the gas station. I go to work at like 6 o'clock in the morning and I go into the gas station and <clears throat> like I said, people randomly tell me things that they probably never told anyone, right? So I'm standing in line waiting to get my monster that's my horrible vice, you know, and this lady just turns around and said, I had a heart attack last year, and while I was in the hospital, my husband packed all of his stuff and left me. I don't even know this lady, a stranger. You know, and I'm just like, like, oh, like that's what you want to hear at five in the morning. So, so I was very heartbroken for her, but at the same time, inside I was like, yes, my powers are coming back. You know? And I went to work, and my friend Patty was there, and I said, oh, my God, Patty, my light's coming back. Like, my powers are coming back. And she's like, why? What happened? Did somebody tell you a horrible story? And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> somebody did tell me a horrible story. So, and from that moment on, everything in my life just got better. And, I mean, I went from weighing, at, at the time of, of my 
rug pulling, I weighed 100 pounds. I've gained 20 pounds of muscle, yoga. My body can do things I didn't know it could do. I can meditate for 30 minutes and go off into places I've never been. I have a peace. When I close my eyes at night, all is well with my soul. And I've just never been more happy in my life. And, and this all happens within a year. So it's, I never knew I could change that much. I never knew that I could transform my life, mind, and body in one year, but you can. And without the bright lights on that right road that I took, and I mean, they're all a different light, and it's almost like they're, they, they make a constellation. They're all connected to each other when you look up. None of them shine any brighter than another. But they're all connected and make something beautiful, and they changed me and helped me and guided me. And I'm forever grateful that I did not drive my car into a semi on the way to work one day. So thank you for listening. And I want to share a little story, a little song that kind of made me feel empowered that nobody is going to take my light away ever again. I am not your rolling wheels. I am the highway. I am not your carpet ride. I am the Powerful, Crystal. What a what a good one to end on there. Yeah, man. Uh, mm. Darkness. I I I feel like I'm. I would be trying to like talk to people who know things better. I would be trying to describe things to people who have been in worse places than me because my my life has been. I, I I can't be more thankful for the life that I have. But thank you so much for sharing that. That that's wonderful. That. To, to have your pain, to pull through it, to, to become a better person on the other side, and just basically say, there is no bad day to choose to heal. And that this is, this is the time from this point forward that I'm going to, I'm going to do what I can with what I, with what I am. So anyway, thank you. I'm going to ramble. Um, the last storyteller, I have to apologize uh, to you all, is me. Um, oh... This is a story that I usually, when I write a story, I polish it a lot. I usually write it and kind of rehearse it like several times, and that time was this morning. And Henry and then Evie, in quick succession, were awake at 5.30, which was the time that I would have spent to do this. So this will probably be a little rough, and I do apologize and, and all that, but we're going to launch right into it. So... This is a story about a journey, and a loss, and snow, and about why setting out is valuable all on its own, and, and probably about destiny, but honestly, I don't know a lot about that one. When I was younger, one of my best friends was an older member of my family named Harold Ehlers. He was my dad's cousin, technically, but I also knew him through church, his auto body shop in Campbell Hill, general foolishness around the community. He was active in the American Legion. He made dozens of parade floats. 
And he was always armed with a joke at all times, and he loved to engage children. So from the point that I was little, I knew who he, this guy was. He had a big white beard. He was fun. Um, in high school, and especially when I would come home from college, Marion Harold's was a frequent stopping point for me. I could always land my 1976 Mercury Monarch there. Most often, I'd find him tinkering the shop, fixing something for a friend, or designing something for his yard or his community. He decorated his life and his house like a crow gathers shiny things for his nest. The walls of his shop were covered with old enameled advertisements he got from all over the place. He loved antiques. Um, uh, he was always, uh, he, on, on the, the buildings of his property, he found where each building was built, what year it was built, and like spray painted on the side so you could see from the road, established 1928. Like you'd care, but you know, like this is the level of detail that he, he loved to invest in, in uh, his, his life, and it was so neat. Um, so uh, from we, we, we talked a lot honestly we told, he told me stories about when he and Mary were younger and they lived in St. Louis and before they decided to move back to Campbell Hill where they both were from originally they settled in the original Rathard homestead it's lined with these beautiful hardwood maple trees uh, right on the roadway there Eventually, he built his shop there, and eventually he retired from his work in the auto body, and he sold Hillside Auto Body um, to somebody else uh, in the community, and he just retired, and he just had more time for the general foolishness and things he enjoyed. He had a little MG, uh, like a little convertible car that he and Mary would just buzz in around the countryside, in and out. You never know when they'd show up in the driveway when Dad and I would be working. Uh, or, or something like that. Uh, he became a tax assessor, so he just generally knew everybody. He loved to show his teeth when he smiled. He always seemed to be tinkering on something in a shop. But when I would show up, he was always welcoming. He always welcomed me with his. Uh, excuse me. He always welcomed my company. We talk about fairness and equity, and he was the first major influence in my life who explained to me that we as people can do better than we are doing. Some people are oppressed, some people have more, and the best we can ever do is make the road a little clearer for those around us if we can. We talked about politics, and as this was mostly in the George W. Bush era, he had a lot to say about the war in Iraq. Uh, so I got my head filled at a young age with all kinds of stuff about like how maybe it shouldn't be this way, and maybe we could do better. And Anyway, that, that stuff had an impact later on down the line. In the summertime... My job, other than helping my dad on the farm at anything he might need, was to mow and mow and mow. At one point, I was maintaining three farmyards, our house in town, the churchyard, the church cemetery, and the duplex apartments. It took about 80 hours a week to mow it all, I would estimate. Probably not, but that's what I feel like it did. Um, I was a teenager. I was young and I was angry. And at the top of a very large road bank on some fateful afternoon, I got so pissed off that I pushed both handles of the Dixon forward and just clean broke one off. And then suddenly I am flying down this bank into the ditch below and the blades on the mower are still going. And like, you know, couldn't have been more dangerous. I'm fine, but it was a huge crash. And at the bottom, I turned it off and I don't know at up to that point in my life if I had ever felt that low. It was just everything out of me all at once. My dad, who was an engineer for Amtrak, was, uh, was gone up in Chicago that day and I just was thinking, I will have to explain this. That other, nothing more than my anger is the cause of this. I got in the car and I just started driving and it didn't take very long before I was at Marion Harold's, just a place I would go to. And I'm sitting in Harold's shop and I'm telling him all of this. He kind of, without too many words, urges me to get into his Econoline truck and we do. And we drive back to the, the site of the accident there 
we drag it back up with a four-wheeler to the shop and we look over the damage and then before we know it we're on the road again going to bumps on the Ava blacktop to get parts for the lawnmower and we take it all back and we fix it all and we weld the handle and we put that back together and it's it's done and through the course of it he doesn't question why I was angry and why I was pissed off and he doesn't stress to say if you hadn't been mad this never would have been a thing not part of it he knew I was hurting it wasn't his mower to fix don't get me wrong but I don't think he knew what he was teaching me that afternoon not enough years later here we go already Uh, (laughs) I was home from med school on winter break I was asleep up in my room when dad came and woke me up it was two in the morning Harold had just died in his kitchen His son Brad did CPR on him exhaustively for, I think, 30 minutes, and he never brought him back. Harold had severe asthma, and he was fine just a few days beforehand, and this happened really suddenly. I went downstairs, and Mom and Dad and I were in the kitchen, grieving, crying already in the darkness, and we braced ourselves for what was going to come later that day, but at some point I decided to go back up to my room just to lay down for a few more hours in the darkness. I'd been listening to a lot of Alison Krauss about then, and... In my mind, in the dark, um, I, I just kept thinking, As I went down to the river to pray, Studying about that good old way, Oh, who should wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. And eventually I fell asleep. And then we did go to Mary's the next morning, and it was horrible, as one might imagine. Ah. So the grieving happened, the family gathered, there were the tears. He'd been 74 years old, which was a good and full life, except that he wasn't sick. He wasn't ready to go. He was just gone, just instantly. Everyone had a story to tell about him. The visitation was on December 30th in Ava, and the viewing line was the longest I have ever witnessed. I remember my grandfather Homer sitting near the casket at age 87 saying, It should have been me like there was some universal balance that had to be met, and he would have gladly given his life. And two months later, he'd follow the same path Harold set out on. The funeral was on New Year's Eve, and I was chosen to be a pallbearer. His brother-in-law, Robert, gave a eulogy that reminded me of Joe Friday from Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. And this is Robert to a T. But there's something about a person reading a history that's supposed to be free of emotion and watching them crack and break as they do it. It's just, it just gets you like nothing else does. I had plans to be that night in Chicago. My friend Craig in those days would always show, uh, throw New Year's Eve parties. Everyone would gather from all the far-flung corners of the earth to come back for these usually, and it was a good excuse to get together and see people over Christmas break. Um, I had to be in Rockford uh, just a few days after that, so it made sense to go. And Mom and Dad said, you should go. You, you don't need to be here. You should go be with your friends and, and, and do what you should do. So after the funeral luncheon, I said the goodbyes, and I, I went to my car. And across the parking lot, my mom yells out, Ben! And I oh, what? And she comes to me with the tiniest little container of green bean casserole. I mean, this Tupperware was like, was like nothing. And she didn't have a reason for why I should take it, but I should. Take this with you. It's like, okay, Mom, thanks. And I hopped in the car, and I drove. And it was cold, and it was gray, but uh, the, the roads were, were clear until they weren't. When I was in Champaign, the snow was coming down, and by the time I got to Rantoul, it was clear it was not going to be stopping. There were several inches of snow on the ground already, but I kept pushing on because I was going to make it to Chicago, because I needed this, because my friend had just died. 
And by the time I got to Gilman, it was clear that this was getting stupid. The snow was probably three or four inches at, 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 on the ground. It was t- I was going 20 miles per hour uh, on the interstate, I would guess. The number of cars on the side of the road with their flashers on in the ditch reminded me that maybe I should get off, but no, surgeon around a little bit further. And at some point, I think around mile marker 300, like maybe Shabance or something like that, I had to get off. And I saw, to my delight, that the next stop, Lights in the Night, was Kankakee. I could see it in the distance. Kankakee! Whoo! You know, <laughs> I got off and I careened into the town center, really just thinking, at least I'll be able to find a hotel room tonight. I'm driving around downtown when I see the train station, of all things. And my dad, who's an engineer for Amtrak, crossed my mind all at once, and I thought, no, hang on, it's 8 o'clock, the train's already gone, but on a whim, called that up, hey, I'm, I'm here in Kankakee and I can go no further. He calls me back a few minutes later, the train is late. It's not there yet. I pull in, I, I wait, and a few minutes later, toes cold, waiting in the snow on the platform, I get on the train. I'm greeted by a conductor that I've known for years. He takes me to Chicago. I get off the train at Union Station and I walk the short distance from Union Station over to the loop and the red line that I'm going to take to get up to Wrigleyville and it is the quietest that I have ever heard Chicago. The snow was falling down and it was like I was the only one who was there. As I cross the Chicago River, it's cold and it's, it's peaceful and I can't stop thinking of Harold, of course, but all the things in my life that have gotten me this far. I wasn't even supposed to get to Chicago tonight, obviously. The snow is keeping me from that. But I'm here because of other people and their generosity and the things they give to me. And do I deserve that? I don't. But, but here I am, and I'm going to do the best I can with that. I get on the, the L. I make it to the party, and it's a great time. I get to see everybody that I haven't seen in forever. Uh, I get to watch Jeremy Pelzer do a keg stand. That was fun. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, also at that party, in addition to seeing everybody else, uh, my, my best friend Eric and I uh, happened to take our second of what would turn out to be annual walks after New Year's Eve has passed, on New Year's Day. We reflect on the year that has passed and the year that will come, and it's always been a lovely little tradition that we've had to tie things together, and we've done it now for over 10 years. And it happened because we made it that night. We both were there. Uh, so... With Harold leaving us so subtly, and me being rapidly pulled back into medical school only a few days later, I never really got the time to properly grieve and know that he was gone. Months would go by, and I'd think, I should talk to Harold about that, you know, like you do. And then you realize he's dead. He's gone. He's not coming back. You're not going to be able to sit in the shop with him anymore. And it just would kill me again and again. So that took some time, but it settles eventually. When I moved back home, I, I took up woodworking after him, honestly, and I, I think he'd probably be pleased to see the wood shop that Nikki and I have built and all the random knickknacks we have on the walls. More after him. My, my grandpa Homer had this gigantic Paps Blue Ribbon sign that I, I took the time to put the neon lights and starters back in, and now it hangs proudly in my wood shop because it's really gaudy and stupid, and who wouldn't need a giant beer sign on their wall? It's like five feet on a cross, but I put it up because of Harold, because this is the kind of thing that would have made him laugh. So, it's January now. It gets cold enough at night. And in a few weeks, the kids and I are going to be heading back over to the homestead where Mary still lives. Because we tap those maple trees that lie in the driveway there now for, for sap. And that's, it's good. And it's, it, it's good to stay and see Mary. I've, I've been pleased that um, my, grandkid, my kids have got to know her. Uh, and, and she's kind of like the auxiliary grandmother to them in a lot of ways. But she, too, has been a wonderful addition to, uh, to, 
you know, our, our family as it grows. Harold showed me that you have to have silly things in your life, and I loved his unique way of talking. In a lot of ways, even after he was gone, he remains my own light in the night, and a point for me to look to when I need to go on, to believe that all this is worth working for, and that whatever good we could get out of people should be treasured and encouraged. I, I just can't truly encapsulate what this man meant to me, and it, I know I'm doing a poor job of it, and I'm really just crying in front of you at this point. <laughs> but, like, it's, it's it, frankly, growing up, you know, you're, you're exposed to certain uh, people and adults and, and uh, people around you, and you get an idea of the shape of the world, and Harold was not that shape. He got to be himself and thrive in that, and he was a big inspiration for me. So, I'm done. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I, I just have to say that uh, I have been the recipient of some amazing things coming out of that wood shop. Uh, a very humble recipient from both of these guys here, actually. So all the work that was put into Ben, uh, I've actually um, uh, been graciously endowed with several gifts from that. So I, I appreciate Harold as well. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, I once went to pick up a big piece of wood from Harold's house. That's right. It was awesome. I won't tell the rest of that story, but maybe when Ben gives me the okay. All right. For many years I've been a rolling stone, my darling. Like a gypsy, I have gone from place to place. Fortune never came to me, Lord, how happy I'll be. Just to look again upon that smiling face. Say we never part as a 
Produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com/nerdalogs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>